and turn the Bible to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15. Last week, uh, Brother Chad Cook opened this up for us and got us off to a good start as Jesus encountered the religious leaders, that delegation of scribes and Pharisees that made their way from the big city of Jerusalem to come and to try to encounter Jesus and took him up and, and caused conflict for him. And, and Jesus handled him well as he exposed the hypocrisy and the error of their traditions uh, versus having faith in, in, in God and God's Word. And so this morning, the theme of the message that I'll bring to you will begin in verse 21. The theme of the message is, The heart of God is moved by believers who demonstrate great faith. You ever wonder, how can I move the heart of God in any matter that you may be dealing with or facing? Consider your faith. In fact, ask these two questions as you listen to the message, as you engage in reading God's Word, and God's Word speaking to you this morning. Ask yourself this, how great is my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Really? You say you have faith, but really? How great is your faith? And we'll look at that in just a moment. How has the Lord tested my faith recently? Remember why God allows you to go what you're going through, go through what you're going through, and why there's struggles and strife that come your way. Is it possible that God is trying to test your faith to reveal something to you about the nature of your faith that you may grow and your faith may grow as we were reading in our responsive reading this morning? You see, if we look at this portion of God's Word, it, it, a, chapter 15 is a transitional chapter, it's a pivotal chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, because it's a transitional period in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's important that we see that and appreciate what is going on in the life and ministry of God's Son, that He's here to reveal the kingdom of God. So Jesus extends... God's kingdom ministry beyond Israel. You're going to see that the Lord is going to cross the boundaries. Actually, geographically, the boundaries of the nation of Israel. You see, Jesus' choice to leave Israel is founded in a couple of reasons. First of all, let's just look at um, chapter 15, verse 21. So Jesus went out from there. This is after he's had the confrontation with the Jewish delegation, the leaders. And he sets the record straight. He, he is, as one commentary said, Jesus is saying more anti-Jew things now than he's ever said. So naturally, he's rousing a lot of resentment by those who are the leaders of the of Judaism. And so he departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And so we'll hold there just a second. It's interesting in Mark's rendition of his parallel gospel of this same account. And in Mark's Gospel in chapter 7, if you want to hold your place here in Matthew, and turn over to Mark chapter 7 very quickly and look at verse 24, Mark enlightens us a little bit more. Yes, Jesus was leaving, going to the north. If you have one of the Bible maps in the back of your Bible and you're following along, you look and, and just to the north of the Sea of Galilee and, and Israel is the region known as Tyre and Sidon, which is commonly known today as the region of Lebanon and Syria. It is Gentile territory. But, but Mark says in, in chapter 7, verse 24, And from there he arose, and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house, and wanted no one to know it. But he could not be hidden. It's like one preacher said, You can't hide a sweet aroma. And Jesus had the sweet aroma of the love of God and the grace of God. It's just so hot. Mark alludes that Jesus and his disciples went on a retreat, if you will. 
out of the nation of Israel, into Gentile territory, into time fighting, to maybe get away for, for somewhat of a well-deserved sabbatical, if you will. The only reason is because, as we well know, Jesus had just had a major conflict with some of the highest leaders of Judaism, and uh, pretty much told them, that, well, in fact, he did. He told them that they were hypocrites. Uh, in uh, um, chapter 15, verse 14, he, uh, verse 7, he called them hypocrites. And in verse 14, he actually told his disciples, speaking of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, he says, they're nothing more than the blind leading the blind. That won't win you a lot of popularity contests back home in Jerusalem, speaking that way about the religious Jesus. But you know and I know that Jesus is speaking the truth. Now, there are other reasons that the Lord chose to depart from the, the, the nation of Israel, temporarily. Uh, as we saw in chapter 14 and verse 1, there were some reasons that he had concerns about the king, King Herod. That very uh, uh, cynical and evil and jealous and paranoid king was now thinking that Jesus, with all the great works that he was doing, was maybe John the Baptist, come back from the grave. So Jesus was aborting a premature confrontation with Herod Antipas. Of course, Jesus would see him face to face, but certainly, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it would be on Jesus' time, not Herod's. And so to avoid a premature confrontation with the king, but also, as we know, in John's gospel, rendition when Jesus said the 5,000, that the people, they responded, they wanted to force him to be king. They said, oh, great, this, this is obviously the Messiah that we've been waiting on. He's going to throw off the iron-fisted rule of Rome, and he's going to be a glorified welfare, because he'll feed us and take care of us and all of that. So they were going to force Jesus to become king, and Jesus realized this was not the time. And so there are other reasons that Jesus had for moving north, to just move, remove himself and his disciples from the state of Israel for that time and for that reason. But there are other reasons, I believe, more importantly. I believe that what we see when Jesus crossed the boundary into Tyre and Sidon, that Jesus had greater kingdom reasons in mind. The Lord's redemptive purpose was in mind. In fact, Jesus was giving us an inaugural view of the mission of the church. Because he was moving now into a territory of people that were not the covenant people of God. He was taking the message of the kingdom of God and the power of the kingdom of God amongst the people who were not Jews. And, and you know, it's interesting... Everything that Jesus does is in the will of God. It's, and he, he says that in John chapter 5, verse 19. He says, I don't do anything without watching my Father. What he does, I will do. And you know, Jesus, uh, or excuse me, God has said to one of his faithful servants centuries before this occurred. In Genesis in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, God said to Abraham, while Abraham was still uh, a fatherless man, God said, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Now listen to what else he said to Abraham in this promise. And he says, and through you, all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth, will be Blessed. And for God to be able to bless all the families of the earth, he needs to move beyond the region of 
Israel. So you see the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham is even coming into creation at this point. God is availing His grace to all people. That's what's happening here, folks. He's taking His grace to those who are not even descendants of Abraham, who have no covenant claim to the grace of God. It's a beautiful thing when we see God reaching out to all people. Isn't that what John said in John chapter 1, verse 12? Where he says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become children of God, even to those who believe upon His name. God makes no distinction today. Listen to what Jesus said over in John's Gospel in chapter 6 and verse 37. He says, All, and I emphasize that word, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Do you hear the heart of the Father through the Son? Jesus is saying, Any person who truly believes and genuinely seeks me with all of his heart, anyone who comes to me seeking me, Jesus says, I will not turn them away. Aren't you glad? I stand before you today and tell you I'm so grateful that Jesus has chosen to extend the good news of the gospel beyond those who are Jews. As I was around this congregation this morning, I'm assuming there aren't too many descendants of Abraham here today. So that makes all of us Gentiles. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus crossed the boundary. And he brought the good news. God loves mankind, even in his sinfulness. And Jesus was exposing people who had never been exposed to the love of God, that wonderful God. I am so glad that the gospel is for all people. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans chapter 1? Verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, first to the Jews. But then after that, the Greeks, the Gentiles, if you will. That's us. We can celebrate even as early as Matthew chapter 15 that Jesus had his eyes and his mind on those who were not even biological descendants of Abraham because he knew the heart of God was to reach all the people who would believe. God help us as a congregation if we ever get in the way of anyone coming to Jesus Christ to be saved. God help us if we ever become a stumbling block to anyone truly, earnestly desiring to worship God. God help us if we become a barrier to anyone who truly believes and calls upon the name of Jesus Christ. Listen, we ought to be a spiritual conduit to people coming to the Lord. Never should we ever hinder because Jesus says, those that the Father draws to me, I will receive. I'll never cast them aside. As excited as I am about that thing, we need to reach to the theme of the message. The heart of the message is about faith. And so as we read a little further there in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is in the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's in the midst of Gentiles. And in verse 22, And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. I want you to just stop and just think what this woman has just revealed, just right there. Jesus encounters a Gentile woman who has great faith. Now, if you read verse 23, you're going to probably be puzzled. 
if you haven't read and studied it before, because of Jesus' response to this, this dear woman's pitiful plea for help. It says in verse 23, But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent, sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, some of you are thinking, oh my goodness. This is our loving Savior, compassionate Lord, and He's, he's given us the, 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 the silent treatment, if you will. Let's stop and think about who is this woman. The Bible describes her in some gospel versions, as Matthew's gospel calls her Canaan, the Canaanite. And in Mark's gospel, he describes her as being a Greek Gentile, a Syro-Phoenician, a Syrian from the region of Phoenicia. She's a, she's a listen, Canaan, Canaan, Canaanite, struck fear, resentment in the heart of God's people. Because you see, it was the Canaanites who occupied the promised land. When Joshua and the children of Israel went in, and they were, they were, they, they were known with a renowned reputation for their wickedness and violence, so much so that Jehovah God told Joshua that he was to utterly destroy them in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 2. These were wicked people. They were pagan. They were idol worshippers and, and committed horrible kinds of sins and, and, and acts of violence. And so here's one of them coming to Jesus. And you talk about a person that has thoughts against them. See, she's a Canaanite and they're a woman. Now, ladies, please don't get offended. This is a different time, okay? A different time. The women had no rights. So she was probably the lowest on the totem pole of social standards, and here she is. She's a, a Canaanite. She's coming to the Lord. But you see what Jesus is doing? He's testing her faith. Give her the silent treatment. Any of you all that are married, ever have your spouse? Don't raise your hand. This, we might have to have a marriage enrichment retreat. But don't you hate the silent treatment? I love this commercial. There's a cell phone commercial out that I like. This uh, girl calls her boyfriend, and she's got these unlimited minutes, and she says, I just want you to know, I'm giving you the silent treatment. And he's like, duh. He says, huh? Uh, listen, this is the eighth time you called me to tell me you're giving me the silent treatment. The silent treatment means you don't talk. And the fact that goodness don't go in. Nothing. Listen, how Jesus gives this dear woman in such pain and struggle, why is he giving her the silent treatment? Because he's testing her faith. The reason that Jesus is testing her faith, first of all, for the benefit of the woman, Jesus wants to show this Gentile, pagan woman, something about her faith. She comes from a pagan background. She has found that her pagan gods are absolutely helpless in her dilemma. She heard about this this great man, the Jewish healer. Listen, I believe, based upon the very words that she uses, she knows more about Jesus than just the fact that he is a healer. Because I believe she has faith that Jesus is indeed more than that. We'll look at that. But not only is Jesus testing her faith for her benefit, but Jesus is also testing her faith for the benefit of his disciples. Listen, over Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, and then again in Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, twice, Jesus has said to say to his disciples in the midst of a storm, Oh, ye of little faith. My disciples, your faith is faltering. It's not what it needs to be. So I believe Jesus is, is drawing out the essence of this woman's 
simple and yet genuine faith to demonstrate to his disciples something about the nature of what real great faith is all about. And then I'll get to go even a little bit further, ladies and gentlemen. I believe that this woman's faith is being tested for the benefit of Christians who will be reading this scripture today. Because any one of you may be here today and you're struggling. And you're struggling against powers that are greater than you. And you're struggling against the limits that are greater than you. And you're struggling against hardship and heartache that is greater than you. And listen, God wants you to have the kind of faith that will move his heart to change circumstances to deliver you. Look at this woman and look at her faith and look at the essence of her faith and see what it is that makes her faith what it is. So let's read further then. It's interesting, you know, when Jesus' disciples were telling him, you know, uh, Lord, just, just send her away. Uh, you know, she, she, she's crying out. She, she's embarrassing us, Lord. And, and I believe, based upon what Jesus was about to say, yes, I believe they were going so far as to say, Lord, just, just kill her daughter. Take care of her. Do whatever you need to do. But just take this woman and say, oh, she's embarrassing us. Because if you read further, Jesus said in verse 24, it says, And he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, everything Jesus is saying, he's saying in earshot of this woman. He's hearing it all. And he's just pointing out to his disciples, you know, listen, guys, I was sent to take care of the Jews, the people of God. Now, that sounds cold, but Jesus has a purpose in saying what he's saying. Because he's setting up this cage to demonstrate the nature of this lady's faith. The good next, verse 25, Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Let me take you back to verse 22 and compare it with verse 25. Do you see what she's saying? Do you hear what she's calling him? She's not just saying, hey, Jewish Sheila. Look at the words. They're in the scripture for a reason. All scripture is given by inspiration of God for the reason that Matthew so accurately records exactly the words that comes out of this, this Canaanite woman. Because we're going to see something about her faith. First of all, as we look at her faith, and hopefully as we look at our faith, and what makes great faith? Number one, great faith is a repentant faith. There's no room for pride and arrogance to come before God, ladies and gentlemen. I don't care how many people like you and how popular you are and how strong you are and how much money you have and what kind of popularity. Listen, it doesn't matter. The only way to come to God in faith is to come with a repentant faith. Do you know this back there? In verse 22, she came. First thing she said, have mercy. Have mercy. This woman knew enough to know that she was a sinner in the very presence of one who was divine and holy. What does a sinner deserve in the presence of one who is holy and, and, and righteous? Judgment. Do you understand that mercy is God withholding from us that which we deserve? The only way we can come to God is through a repentant heart. There's no such thing as a person coming before God arrogantly with their arms crossed and say, well, God, you sure are lucky that I'm here. Listen, you're lucky, you're lucky to even be alive. He comes with a repentant heart. Oh, have mercy because God could have condemned and judged her and thrown her into hell. And so much every sinner 
You're here today and you don't have a personal relationship with the God who created you and the God who created the world in which we live. Let me tell you something. There's only one way to come before God. Not with excuses or rationalization. You come with repentance and you say, Oh God, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for my sins. I think I want to turn my back on my sinful life and I want to come to you. That's what this woman was doing. First and foremost, before she asked anything, she was getting things right with her and the Lord. She was repentant. But also, as we look further, she was also very reverent. She says, Oh Lord, divine divinity. She knew this was not an ordinary man. Listen, I believe this woman had heard about Jesus' powerful preaching and his teachings about the kingdom of God, his many thousands of miracles, she knew in her heart of hearts that this was no ordinary teacher, no ordinary miracle worker. This indeed was one who was divine. And she was calling out to him, Oh, Lord, not only that, as we look there in verse 25, or back in verse 22, she knew that he was not only divine, but he was the promised Messiah of the Jews. How did she know that? Because she addressed him with a title that is reserved for the Messiah. She says, Oh, son of David. How did she know that? He knew that the Messiah that the Jews have been talking about. Listen, the word had gotten around that one day God was going to send his promised Messiah to rescue his people, to redeem his people. This was the one. She says, Oh Lord God, oh Messiah, son of David. Great faith is a different faith, great faith is also a very reverent faith. And she knew this was indeed the Messiah who was before her. I need to move along because great faith is a persistent faith. I believe somehow this woman had heard or maybe sensed that what Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 7 when he was talking about ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. Don't give up the first time. Keep on asking. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Because God honors a persistent faith. Let me ask you something, brothers and sisters. When have you bailed out too early? Maybe just at the verge that God was going to do something great and wonderful in your life and you said, well, God must not be listening to me. The prayers must not be going through. And you give up. Never give up. You don't know when the next prayer may be the very one that God is waiting to hear to move his heart to work in your life. You may have a, a precious loved one who is a, uh, maybe a relative that's lost. And maybe someone out there caught up in sin or in addictions or whatever. Maybe marriage is about to break up. And listen, you, you think, well, there's no hope. There's always hope. There's always hope in Christ. That's why Christians today need to exercise a great faith, a faith that is persistent. And then a humble faith. A great faith is a humble faith. And we only know this as we read further. Because now Jesus is going to get a little personal now with the lady. In verse 26, Jesus answered, he's talking to the lady, It's not good to take the children's bread, speaking of the children of Israel, the Jews, and throw it to the little dogs. It's no secret. Everybody knows that the Jews have this condescending, derogatory term or expression. They stuck the Gentiles as dogs. This is not the first time this woman had heard this from a Jew. I guarantee you. But you know the interesting thing in the Greek language? 
They're preparing for God. Python speaks of those, those wild, mangy, scavenger dogs that run and pack and eat and all kinds of whatever and, you know, and big destructive things and the mean and what mangy and all. That, that's one kind. I don't like those kind of dogs, do Somebody call you a wild dog, that's the reason to get offended, okay? The difference is that Jesus intentionally selects the term that many of you would use for your pet. The one that's in the house. The one that gets total fat. I was told in Dan the other day with whatever the seven pastor and Tim and Heather have a big old Labrador retriever. There's nothing but a big baby. Dan and I were sitting here at the table eating and I noticed there was a big black nose sticking over the edge of the table. And I noticed that Calvin went to her to get some table scraps. He didn't come to talk to uh-uh. And Jesus uses this term. There's the, the, the household pet with a, a sense of affection. And this lady picks up on that language. She doesn't make a beat. She's humble in herself. You know, how many people, when Jesus talks, how many people, what's the devil to you? You go to seek help from somebody who's supposed to be compassionate and loving, and they call you a dog. Hey, look, the way people are pushed up and proud today, they're supposed to forget you, you. Come out of here. You call me a dog, you know, your mama, or whatever. I would suggest you do that, okay? But you get the idea. Highly offended. Not this woman. She didn't miss a beat. I love her response. And I got a feeling that the Lord loved it too. Right away, in verse 27, she says, True, Lord, true. Yet even the little dog, the Gentile, even the little dog eats the crumbs and falls to their master's table. You talking about great faith? Great faith says, Lord, I know I don't deserve to sit at your table as one of your children. I know I don't have a place reserved by covenant to sit at the feast at your table. But Lord, I know enough about you and your love and your grace and your mercy and your power that Lord, we are absolutely satisfied to sit at the base of the table as little puppies and we'll take every crumb because your crumbs are sufficient for every need that we have. Lord, we'll take the crumbs. And the life that went on, ladies and gentlemen, that was all that Jesus was waiting on. Did you hear that, Peter? Did you hear that, Andrew? Did you hear that, James? Did you hear that, John? That is God's faith. Verse 28, the Lord answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Isn't it interesting that only twice that Jesus makes this kind of a commendation to somebody? And both times it happens to be Gentiles. Not Jews, not Pharisees, sides of Sadducees, not even Jewish people. He made it first in chapter 8 to a Roman centurion who told Jesus when he asked Jesus to come and to heal his sick servants. And, and the centurion said when Jesus was going to go to his house, he said, no, Lord, you don't even need to go all the way to my house. Because I believe you got the power. You can speak the word that Jesus was so impressed. He says, I haven't seen such great faith in all of Israel. That didn't make the Jews feel too good. That was a good condition. Then here he is in front of another Gentile. He says, oh, what great faith. 
We don't have to be a preacher. We don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to be a Sunday school teacher or a deacon. Listen, anybody can have great faith. Anybody can exercise the kind of faith that will move the heart of God. And Jesus expresses his great pleasure over that. And he gives his divine acknowledgement of the nature of her faith. And in God's eyes, I believe God was looking at this dear woman coming to him, and he was thinking about how this fulfilled the words of Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 29 when he says, And you, in verse 13, And you will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. This Canaanite woman who desperately needed the Lord sought him. She didn't care what the barriers were. She didn't care what the cost was. She didn't care that she had to humble herself. She was seeking the Lord with every ounce of her being. And she found him. And you know, so impressed was Jesus by her faith. He didn't say, now let's go find this woman. I told you a little girl here. I'll lay my hands on her. I'll do some incantation. Jesus was so impressed by the faith of this dear woman that immediately, that hour, the demons that had tormented, we don't know how old the girl was, but the demons that had tormented the mind and the soul and the spirit of this girl were suddenly gone. Gone by the power of Almighty God because of great faith of her mind. Wow, what a powerful message for parents today and grandparents today. As you know, as well as I do, there are, there's a plethora of demons that are seeking for the souls and the minds and the hearts of our young people today. And far too many youth are caught up and ensnared by, by demon oppression or possession. Let me tell you something. The only way that we're going to see a deliverance of the young youth of our nation is that they've got to be godly moms and dads and granddads and grandmothers falling before God, humbling themselves, crying out to heaven with great faith. Our nation, I believe, is under the tyranny of demonic activity. And that's the only thing that's going to set America free, ladies and gentlemen. It won't be a mighty military. It won't be political maneuvering. It won't be an economic recovery. It's going to be God's people coming back to God, exercising a great faith in the Lord. That's the essence of this wonderful lesson in Matthew's Gospel. For those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ and we're about to receive the elements of the Lord's table, stop and think about it. Before the day you, the moment you pray to receive Jesus Christ in your heart, you and I were no better than this woman. We were spiritual Canaanites, if you will. Colossians says we were alienated and separated from God. Enemies of God. Just like that same thing. You and I were enemies of God. And now we have the privilege of coming to the Lord's table and partaking of elements that represent for us as we remember that it was His body that was broken for our sins. It was His blood that was shed for the redemption of our sins. 
And I would never, ever confront in your mind anything contrary to what the elements represent. That's exactly what they represent. And you know, hope and liberty can just cause you to think one step further as you partake of these morsels of bread this morning. And you'd be so humble to be able to see yourself sitting as a little puppy at the edge of the table. And when you put that bread that represents the precious broken body of Jesus Christ into your mouth, might you say with a prayer also, Lord, I take your crumbs delightfully that you give it all to me. Because in you, Lord Jesus, your grace is absolutely sufficient for every need that I could ever have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can come before you and let you seek you out through your divinely inspired, infallible, inherent word. And this morning, Lord, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's table, these elements that represent your broken body and your shed blood, I pray that you will search our hearts. Show us anything, Lord, that is unpleasing to you, that we might confess it and repent of it, and we might be ready to receive the blessing of this ordinance. God, I pray your Holy Spirit speak boldly and powerfully to the hearts of all of us, that our faith might be tested, and as it's tested, we might grow in our faith to have a great faith for your glory. We thank you and ask your blessings upon this ordinance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Luke's Gospel, in chapter 22, we're told that Jesus, before his own arrest and trial and crucifixion, met with his disciples in that upper room, and it says, And when the hour had come, he sat down with the twelve apostles with him, and he said to them with fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and told them, took this and divided among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. I forget to you as my fellow Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no greater call. There is no greater purpose in all of our lives other than that we would proclaim the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Son of God that others who do not know Him might come to know Him and receive His gift of salvation.